Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. Today, we're talking about journalism students. More to the point, what limits their ability to get stories and how to land scoops. Here to tell us how it is possible for students to get big stories is someone who has done it himself. Connor Stringer is a 21-year-old third-year multimedia journalism student at Bournemouth University. He's also the editor-in-chief of the student magazine Nerve. Connor, a few weeks ago, scored a pretty big local news story, which went on to make front page of the local newspaper, The Daily Echo in Bournemouth. He tells us what routes he went through to expose safety concerns in a student accommodation block. This comes at a time when we have reported on the difficulty for journalism students to get stories for a range of reasons, be that not taken seriously or their own dwindling self-confidence. Connor shares what has worked for him and some of his own tried and tested techniques for overcoming both of those stumbling blocks in today's podcast. Don't go anywhere. Connor joins us on Skype after this quick message from the journalism.co.uk jobs board. This podcast is brought to you by journalism.co.uk. We bring you the latest jobs in the media and communications industry. Our job of the week is the head of content audience and engagement position at NewsQuest. To apply for this opportunity and more, visit our jobs board on www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Connor, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. Very much looking forward to um, diving into a topic that we're touching on here, which is kind of some of the reasons why it can be hard for journalism students to get stories. We're talking to you, Connor, because you're kind of a good example of a student who has uh, proven that it is possible to get really good stories. Scored a sizable scoop recently in um, your local area in Bournemouth about this student accommodation block, which was revealed to have these these serious safety issues with its cladding, similar, of course, to that used in the Grenfell Tower block, which resulted in that awful tragedy. Connor, how on earth did this story happen? How did it come on your radar? Very, very long story short, the um, the building in question I actually live in and used to work in, and uh, through the grapevine I had, uh, I had heard and been given statements uh, that there had been some kind of ACM uh, cladding still on the building that hadn't been removed for some time that was of... Uh, Grenfell-like uh, cladding. Now, it, it was a weird one because obviously I went to the residence meetings and, and I'm, I'm a very keen believer in that uh, you make your own luck. So it almost kind of like it jumped right into my lap. I went to the residence meetings, took some notes, trying to make, you know, make contact with their uh, spokesperson who was there as well, just made some general inquiries. And then from there, after some, you know, good digging and some investigating, you find out the real crux of the problem. And it's, it was a lot more than what uh, they were making out to be. It is the kind of story that just makes you sit back and go, well, there's there's no way. Um, you said you, you heard about it through the grapevine. Uh, what, what does that mean, Connor? Um, but through sources and stuff, obviously as a resident and uh, having formerly worked there, you know, I know people who live in the building and colleagues and former colleagues in that. And for from what I understand, there was always a suspicion in 2015 Um there was a kind of a, a previous history with the building in terms of uh, the cladding that was on its exterior. So when you kind of get the news that the that um, the company was holding uh, meetings with residents and um, to to let them aware of the situation that they had been issued an improvement notice by the um, Bournemouth Pool and Christchurch Council to get this HPL and uh, or rather ACM cladding off the building, um, that's when things started to line up. 
investigating this as a journalism student or student journalist, whichever you prefer, did you encounter any problems, be that talking to people, going to the meetings, getting access to that data? What what sort of uh, hurdles were there in piecing this together? It's always difficult uh, as a student journalist, one, to be taken seriously, and two, to kind of get your foot uh, in the door in, in these stories that you think can carry a little bit of weight. You know, I find it a little bit maybe uh, in terms of the quality of replies and statements I was getting and not getting a lot of detailed info, which I guess that comes with uh, any investigative piece. Um, but in terms of, you know, presenting myself as a student journalist and how you go about approaching those situations, um, we're always taught, and something I really strongly believe in is like, you know, whatever you do, try and steer away from calling yourself a, uh, a student journalist because as soon as people hear that, they um, they switch off immediately. I very selfishly like to use the um, the editor-in-chief of Nerve Magazine title, um, which seems to sound a lot better than a <laughs> journalism student at, at Bournemouth University. Um, so, you know, if anyone had a blog or um, were had any kind of position at a, a student title or anything like that, make sure you use that as your point of contact rather than uh, putting the word student out there because sometimes you can almost kill a story before you even start. Have there been times you've you've approached a, an interview as saying, oh, I'm a student with BU and it hasn't quite materialised or it's been very reticent on their part to talk to you versus, of course, editor-in-chief of the magazine? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It happens quite a lot, actually, when, you know, when we're trying to get content for the magazine, it's a bit of a spin-off, but uh, when you, you know, go to contact, you know, big celebrity PR agencies and things like that, they're very much more keen if you're an editor of a magazine rather than saying that you're uh, a student publication. Look, as a student journalist, unfortunately, the reality is that we don't have much experience and arguably not that many strengths to lean on in terms of uh, um, integrity and hierarchy and, you know, uh, of having a big bit of weight behind you that you can use um, to get big interviews. So you've got to use what you can, use the tools that you have and... Um, really strikes them a little bit. <laughs> it is understandable, but it obviously doesn't help with your deadlines, does it? That's probably the most frustrating part as well, um, is is the uh, is the waiting. And, you know, you maybe have to make about five phone calls to get one in comparison to if you, you know, only having to make one and getting what you need right there and then. When you were getting kind of shortchanged for replies, Connor, what did you do? Personally, Jig, I'm, I'm quite persistent. I don't really like no for an answer or, you know, I don't like getting short change for an answer. So I'll find multiple routes, you know, to go away different avenues. For example, um, you know, in the follow-up story, in the cladding story where um, uh, I revealed that there was three different buildings in the pool, uh, across Pool and Bournemouth with this kind of Grenfell-like uh, cladding. One of the buildings um, had been issued an improvement notice um, just two weeks ago and obviously I contact them for comment and tr ask them you know if, if they could see me some hassle by, <laughs> by giving me the improvement notice themselves and of course they wouldn't and rightfully so uh, and then you know it's all about finding different avenues to go and get that improvement notice so you go to the council you go to any kind of public notices that have been published. What we haven't touched on yet, Connor, of course, is that this story went on to make front page of the local newspaper um, in, in the Daily Echo. Explain to us, please, how exactly that happened. How did this go from a student story into the uh, local news? Bournemouth University is an NCTJ accredited course and one of the uh, inspectors, shall we say, is uh, Toby Granville, editorial director at uh, NewsQuest. 
coincidentally, the day that uh, I published it was actually the day that but he happened to uh, to be in. And obviously, being editorial director of NewsQuest, he oversees um, the Bournemouth and Daily Echo and many other NewsQuest papers. And uh, he obviously came up to me and spoke to me about the story and was impressed. And, you know, on the advice, I think, of him and others, they said that I should um, contact the Echo about it. And uh, in fact, they actually got in contact with me originally. So I think uh, my number had been passed on um, through lectures or anything and things like that and um uh long story short a few back and forth and a few clarifications on comments and things to to check a few things and that was it really yeah made front page um the next day and have had uh three in since then so um it's just all about keeping that rapport and um working hard to um to get very good original updates good job sounds amazing what was what was toby's best advice to you just curious between him and uh, a lecture of mine, uh, program leader Andy Bissell, the nicest man on the planet, and the knowledge he has as well was, you know, when we were get, I was getting uh, replies back from uh, Kaplan and the other relevant companies and building companies and things, and the the key advice that uh, they both said, which I thought was very clever, is that you know never to neglect the importance of the contents of those comments because sometimes they themselves can create a completely new angle or a completely new spin and offer you a new bit of information that perhaps that you know you could never had the update from Kaplan was that they were gonna uh they planned to appeal it was literally stuffed in the bottom two words just saying that they were planning an appeal Connor had you sort of taken the short change from the beginning had you not scrutinized those devils in the detail what would your story look like? It wouldn't be as good, would it? No, it wouldn't, to be honest with you. You know, if I had a settled for uh, waiting for the improvement notice to be posted by um, uh, Kaplan themselves, that would have been, you know, we could have waited an awful long time. And, I'd, and from what I understand, they didn't actually post the full improvement notice either. There was elements of that that were uh, were not published, um, from what I understand. Just to, just to clear that up, Connor, what exactly did you manage to squeeze out of them by being that a little bit more tenacious? I'm not sure if you know what improvement notices are, um, but I've certainly found out over the last few weeks, that's for sure. <laughs> um, they contain a lot of things, and, and they're great, to be fair, and for us journalists, because what they do is they, they set out the amount of problems that need fixed. Uh, their, their scale of, um, shall we say, hazardness and, and to what extent are they dangerous. So it just turned out that a number of these points were category one hazards, uh, which are the highest um, that the improvement notice um, would label. Uh, and they also very importantly set out the start and finish dates at which what point in time they would like each particular hazard to be started and completed by. Um, so it's information that obviously makes multiple stories um you know and one big one as well um kaplan living in bournemouth themselves um hadn't published the improvement notice obviously i knew they had it but um you know i had to be quite proactive uh, and eager instead of uh, waiting for them to give it to me which i'm not sure they even still would to this day or they still haven't given it to me when i asked um uh you know go to the council go and look at if there's any public notes on the improvement notice um of which there was, and since it was going to be uh, published, I was able to get my hands on the full one, unredacted, um, and uh, got to view the full contents of of the situation and uh, delve into the deep depths of a uh, very meaty, worded and overly complicated <laughs> info on, uh, on cladding. So, um, yeah, it was good. With this particular story, were people reluctant to talk to you? It's a tricky one because it is an embarrassment to a company to find out that someone's going to go and spill the beans on 
the details of your improvement notice that tells everyone that you've got a six minute delay on your fire alarm system and you've got 25% of the building covered in, um, you know, Grenfell light cladding. I did find that definitely towards um, the more I was asking for, obviously their right of reply that they were being uh, more shorter and shorter. But I guess that just comes with um, being persistent and definitely getting on their nerves. But you did manage to speak to students for this piece is, is what I'm getting at. Were they Were they happy to speak to you? Yeah, in terms of the students themselves who lived in the building, yeah, they you know students are always often the best interviews because, um, and especially a situation like this, they add a great human element to a story that often you know, but by that seems very dry and overcomplicated with um, statistics and scientific definitions for a piece of aluminium, which is not overly exciting. Um, so when you can get hold of those those students uh, and give you those comments, yeah, they were they were extremely open. Of course, you know much of this information was was new to them so an opportunity for them to express their concerns and often parents uh kind of leaning on them to express their concerns as well um always makes for a good story and it was something uh, obviously i was very grateful to get uh insight to as well that's a good example of when it kind of makes sense to speak to students for stories one thing i found when i was at uni is that one of the things that limits students from finding stories is this kind of students interviewing students when they really should be going higher up the chain is that still a thing it is unfortunately i hate to report back but things haven't particularly changed that's just what people want to do and obviously there's a variety of factors in that people maybe are um you know under confidence or just feel like they don't have the skills to talk to people but i think students have to have you know some kind of belief in themselves that, you know, everyone is willing to talk to anyone. You know, all you have to do is pick up the phone and um, know your story, know your statistics and know your facts and uh, and you can get it. But as far as people contact or uh, students contacting students for interviews, it's um, still very much the same. How, how true is that? Because, I mean, it's not very likely that, I don't know, a local council or a local MP is going to be that forthcoming without speaking to a student. Um, you say that, look, personally, like over the last three years of my time in Bournemouth, I've built great relationships with um, councillors and, you know, and a, a great rapport with them. And, and that's very key. I think as a student, the best thing you can do is maintain a great relationship, be kind, be friendly and, you know, always compromise to, to ensure that you always have someone to go back to. Take um, councillor Mike Green, for example, councillor for Bournemouth Central, conservative councillor. Uh, you know, Simon and I have chatted on many a topics from hybrid cars and the importance of uh, um, uh, the climate agreement to cladding on buildings in, in his area, you know, over the past three years. And each time, you know, he likes talking and we catch up and we chat and uh, uh, we talk about everything before we do the interview. So, you know, MPs is a different question. MPs are always going to be more reluctant and um, are far more busy. And students are definitely at the bottom of their radar, unless it is election time, of course, and they need to make sure that they're <laughs> friendly. That's a different question. Um, but councillors, look, they love to talk as well. And, you know, councillors often get a hard time uh, because they often don't get an opportunity to talk uh, across local and national papers as well. And, you know, some of these people have access and have been in the, the electoral system and, and the community for all their life and know the air better than most and, and the subject better than most. So uh, in terms of experience and knowledge in an interview, you can't ask for much more if you're a student. So are you on first name basis with all of those councillors then? Uh, I wouldn't say all of them. <laughs> a few of them. A few of them probably hit me, but a few others, uh, yeah, we're friendly with, yeah. How, how did you break into those networks and those worlds, Connor? 
Honestly, it's just a simply, simple as just kind of calling and chatting, you know, with stories and always just being, trying to be proactively friendly. So I don't want to sound like a, a broken record or, or like a parent here, but, you know, just trying to be uh, as nice as you are. And at the end of the day, like, um, you know, they understand that you want something. And, you know, often for, for councillors or MPs or anyone, you know, being interviewed, um, you're giving them the opportunity to, put a very important there very important opinion across if it's uh, on a story as big as cladding and that's something that perhaps that they can be extremely valuable for so um in terms of how i broke into the network it was just as simple as picking up the phone and chatting you know and it just so happens that when you've done about three or four stories with the same counselor that they get used to <laughs> they get used to you ringing and they're more than happy oh it's it's connor again on the phone yeah she'll be hung up <laughs> that's it oh yeah some of them are, oh it's connor so i will answer it or some of the i'm sure will flip over the phone and uh, <laughs> and uh and won't answer clearly you've got great confidence in yourself connor how much of what we're talking about is psychological we touched on it before about sort of caveating stories with you know this is just for uni i'm a student journalist how much of this is kind of students not seeing themselves perhaps worthy to handle these these conversations and these interviews i think students in this day and age do see themselves as underappreciated or undervalued to an extent look mental health problems within the student population and, and young people in general is on the rise and the doubts you know amongst themselves mentally and their peers perhaps is at the highest it's ever been i'm not sure what it was like for you but um you know it's a constant debate that universities are trying to address and you know make make each other aware of so i wouldn't doubt for one second that it, you know it's a case of i don't believe myself why would a counselor or an mp want to spend the time to talk to me but they're just another person it's just like chatting to a friend or your mum or your dad or anyone like that you know as long as you're polite and courteous and explain what you're doing and the reasons for the call and and what the story is there's no reason why they would they would ever say no unless they were in a really bad mood but uh, let's hope you, you don't call them on a day like such what about if it's something to do with the fear of rejection it's a very good point fear of rejection is um is a very is very real and look everyone has it at some point i think that fear of rejection is overcome the more times almost you're rejected or you know the more times that you are picking up the phone and, and making the effort uh, and that it doesn't go your way you know many a time uh, I've picked up the phone and uh, to counselors you know don't give the comment they want or you know it's not all going very well or you're, you're watching uh, your story and angles of your story kind of unwind before you as they become less and less strong you know it's just the reality of journalism and it's the joys of it too it's almost like you have to embrace it and just be at one with the <laughs> with the uncertainty and the uh, and the the reality that things probably tomorrow are going to be completely different to how they were yesterday. Great bit of knowledge for anyone listening in, I think. Um, top line piece of advice that you've kind of learned from this experience, Connor, what is it? What's your main piece of advice for kind of what works in terms of getting a story as a student and, and the sort of best things you've learned through this, through these last couple of weeks with this story? Being a student journalist, as much as we want to be taken extremely seriously, um, also has its, uh, its benefits too, because, you know, we have the kind of, the bubble of metaphorical protection in that we're learning and if, if things go wrong you can make your mistakes here and, and the repercussions aren't that big so take solace in that you know and and in, enjoy the learning process that um mistakes will happen and embrace them and make them now rather than make them in 20 years time if toby granville's my editor and yeah <laughs> he's giving me an earful the main thing i kind of take from this is give them a reason to take you seriously is that fair i'd say that's fair yeah and you know if 
if you can prove to employers and skills, and one thing I probably didn't mention is that that transition from going into the student environment into a workplace is that they're looking for the key, a, a number of key things. I think it's being proactive, you know, going, being able to go out and, and get your own news, source your own news and, you know, don't have people come and tell you what to do, you know, go to them with stories, pitch to them potential stories. That's all things they love to see. Connor, it's been a pleasure speaking. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the podcast and wish you all the best in the future. Mate, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, and thanks for having me. Thanks, of course, to you at home or on the commute for tuning in. If you like what you've heard, we're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So search for the journalism.co.uk podcast and hit that subscribe button. Always appreciated. Just announced this week our details for our next digital journalism conference, News Rewired, happening for the first time, no less, outside of London. We're up in Salford, Greater Manchester at Media City UK on the 4th of June 2020. Book now to take advantage of our early bird offer, which will save you £50 on the tickets. Head to newsride.com for all of those details. Uh, what else? Oh yes, all the team will be in London next week for an informal networking drink event for journalists, courtesy of Newsado. We'd love to see you there. That's on the 4th of February near King's Cross. Details on how to RSVP for that event are on the website and on Twitter. That's at Journalism News. You can also DM us there if you fancy having a chat with me and guessing on this very podcast. And you can also find me on Twitter at JPG Journalism. But that's all from me this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Until next time. <laughs>